This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good to be with you this morning. If you could open up your Bibles to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, we are doing a summer study. We're working our way through Philippians, and we're kind of teaching this whole book in the period of the summer. So we'll be uh, done sometime in September, I think like the second week or so. It's a fascinating book of uh, studying the Apostle Paul's communication with this church that he really loved and uh, really had a great relationship with. Um, I was thinking about this as we dig into this text today, that it is really easy, isn't it, to be quick to complain, uh, to, to be quick to make sure that other people know what the challenges are that each of us face. And we all, everybody comes here with different burdens today, uh, some more than others, but we all come with something. And uh, there's something about us that we just want other people to know about that. And I'm not sure that this generation is more of a whining and complaining generation than any previous generation. Okay, yes, they are, let's be honest. But um, the reality is that social media has just made it possible so that one's complaints can be heard much more broadly than we could have uh, even, uh, you know, 10 years ago or so. So in the old days, old school, analog, you just sort of uh, complained to one person. Or maybe if you could get a group of six or seven to listen to you, you could complain to a small group. Now you can complain to hundreds of people, and depending on how many social media connections you have, maybe thousands of people, you can let folks know what your problems are and what you don't like and how difficult life is. If you, if you doubt this, uh, you ask any of the wives in the room what happens when their husbands get sick and uh, ask about how that process, well, don't ask them, because some might not have good answers. They might be embarrassing. But uh, we, we tend to complain. And even if we don't complain, we, we tend to want to ensure, if, even if it's not outright complaining, we want people to know how difficult our lives are. We want them to know. We want, I want you to be informed. It's just not going well for me. I want your sympathy. And so we want people to know and to somehow be aware and somehow acknowledge how difficult our boss is, how, how, how busy we are, and thus, because of our busyness, how hopelessly behind we are. I can't talk about how busy I am in a complaining sort of way. Uh, how hard it is to parent this particular child or all of our children. How much work we have to do. How unfair the professor or the teacher really is. How our health problem persists and there's no end in sight. We want people to know and understand that we've been misunderstood. We have been judged, unfairly judged by a coworker, unfairly judged by our in-laws, unfairly judged by someone in the church of all places. And so we want people to be aware of what we are going through. Now, I'm not advocating that we should be um, silent, that we should somehow hide 
the reality of our lives. I'm not advocating that we should be dishonest. I'm not advocating that we shouldn't be transparent. Though on social media, there's a time not to be transparent. But in general, relationally, I'm not arguing for not at, you know, that we never speak about the difficulties of our lives. Look at the Psalms. In the Psalms, there's frequently complaint made. Now, it's to God, but it's public for others to hear in the context of worship. Uh, there is a complaint to God. How long, O Lord, will I endure this? And so there is even biblical example of public uh, grief and complaint, and it's in our book of worship, the book of Psalms. So I'm not advocating that we be silent about all difficulties. What, what I want to talk about is what is our perspective on our difficulties? Because many times we just want to be heard. We just want people to know. We just want sympathy. Many times that's what's going on behind our complaining and our whining. But what is our perspective? In other words, how do you see the troubles in your life? How do you evaluate? What is your perspective on the difficult boss, on the persistent health problem, on the the child that is resistant to you as a parent, uh, on the problem with the in-laws that I mentioned, or whatever it is, the co-worker challenges, uh, the, the being misunderstood or judged? How do you see your troubles? The passage we're going to look at today, we're going to see Paul evaluating his troubles. And if I'm going to be honest, I'm going to say he's evaluating his troubles with a very different grid than I typically evaluate my troubles. He is evaluating his adversity with a whole different perspective. So let's look at Paul's perspective as he speaks, uh, as he writes from prison uh, about his experience right now. Verse 12 of chapter 1. We'll cover verses 12 to 18 today. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would see you so clearly today that our minds would be gripped by your work for us, Lord Jesus, that our affections would be stirred for you, that our hearts would be captured by you so that we would face the difficulties of our lives with a heart of rejoicing as we read in this passage. God, we pray that you would give us a divine perspective. Everyone in this room has trouble. Everyone in this room faces some difficulty. Some of us are perhaps in the greatest season of trial we've ever experienced. Others of us only have minor burdens and challenges today. But being human, we all carry 
our burdens, and we all bring a load of them in here today. And we simply pray, Lord, according to your will, you would remove trial and burden. And when, when it is not your will to remove, we pray that we would have your perspective and that we could respond with joy, looking for you to advance your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul's perspective, I want to talk about two points of his perspective here, uh, really. Uh, well, I actually have a third idea I'm going to share with you, but so let's call it three. Uh, from, this, from this passage, first of all, when Paul looks at his life, he says the gospel is advancing through adversity. The gospel is advancing through adversity. The gospel is advancing, and it's advancing through his adversity. Here's what's going on. The Philippians, according to chapter 4, have renewed their interest in Paul. And what they have done is they have sent uh, a guy named Epaphroditus, and he has brought finances to help them. He's brought um, support to Paul, who is imprisoned. And um, the Philippians, uh, he's received an update on the Philippians. And so now the Philippians are wanting to know how Paul is doing. They've sent their guy. He almost died. Epaphroditus evidently gets ill or something and almost dies. And so they want to know how's their messenger. And most importantly, they, they want to know how is Paul. They have a concern for him. And so they are eager to hear how he's doing. When they receive this letter, it would be exciting. It would be read publicly. Uh, there weren't multiple copies in a Bible like we have here. It would have been a single copy sent to the church. Uh, probably to the leaders of the church, to be shared and read on a Sunday, likely, to the church as they gather. And they want to know, we heard from Paul, what has happened? How is it going for Paul? But catch this, Paul does not start by telling them how he is doing. Paul starts by telling them how the gospel is doing. Now these are two very different perspectives, right off the bat. 12, I want you to know, brothers, that I'm a little bit hungry, that the guy I'm chained to is a mess. Can somebody get me out of here? I want you to know, brothers, I hate it. I'm claustrophobic. I'm in a small room. I want you to know, brothers, I'd much rather be out with you preaching the gospel. No, I want you to know, brothers, here's what I want you to know about me, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. This is a very different perspective. He wants them to know that what has happened has served. Well, what has happened? He's been imprisoned. And there's there's, uh, commentator scholars debate where he's writing this letter from. Most agree that he's writing from Rome, and most think he's probably writing uh, at the end of Acts, when we studied Acts, like chapter 28 in there, it's probably writing at that time. He was basically under house arrest. He had been in prison. The, uh, he had gone to the temple. There was a big problem in Jerusalem with Paul. They tried to, the Jews tried to kill him. They arrested him. They tried him, couldn't find anything wrong with him. Ultimately, he, he appeals all the way to Caesar. And so he's taken via, via ship, which wrecked along the way, but he's taken via ship all the way to Rome and he's appealed for the emperor to hear his case. And so he's there and he's waiting for the emperor to hear his case. And so he's probably under house arrest. When he uses this word being imprisoned, he, he is, it means chains. So he's probably chained. He, he, he probably does not have the freedom to come and go as he want at, wants at all. He's, he's somewhere uh, near the palace likely, and he is chained to a guard. He can have guests. At the end of the book of Acts, guests come and go. So he is, what's happened? Well, he is imprisoned. He is limited. He is, cannot go where he wants. 
And this should be a major problem for the church because Paul is unique. Paul has been called by God to take the good news of Jesus to the Gentile world. He's a missionary. He travels with a team of missionaries. They go into a city. They start telling people about Jesus. People get converted. They start a church in that city. They train some leaders. They love the people. They model the Christian life. Then they pick up and they go to the next city. Often they're kicked out of one city. Then they go to the next city. They start sharing the gospel there. People are converted. They start a church. This is what he does. So the guy who is out taking the gospel to new areas that are unreached, the guy who's bringing the good news, cannot do that anymore. He cannot be out preaching. He cannot be out evangelizing. He cannot be out starting new churches. And so the common logic is that if the main guy is down, if the guy who's have a re- had a revelation from Jesus, who was actually transported to heaven at one point, there's nobody like Paul running around uh, reaching the Gentiles at this point. So the common logic would be if Paul's not traveling, if Paul's not debating in the synagogues, if Paul's not teaching, if Paul's not appointing leaders, if Paul's not leading this little band of apostolic missionaries that go around preaching the gospel, then the gospel's not going to be advancing as it should. Everyone would look at this and say, this is not good. This must be the devil. This must be let's pray him out of there. This can't be a good situation. And Paul says this, I want you to know that what's happened to me, it's causing the gospel to advance. And he gives two ways that the gospel is advancing. The gospel is the good news of Jesus, and the word advance means it's used, he uses it uh, as a progress, as the word progress later in this first chapter, I think verse 25. So it is progressing, it is going forward. He's in chains, but the gospel is unchained. That's his point. And it's happening in two ways. First of all, he says the imperial guard has heard about Christ. Verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard knows about Jesus now. Who is the imperial guard? The imperial guard, or the praetorium they're called sometimes, they were crack soldiers, about 9,000 soldiers that were assigned to guard the emperor and guard his palace. And I guess in this case to probably guard some of the maybe key prisoners that were making appeal to the emperor. So these guys, these are key men. It takes 9,000 of them to guard the emperor. If you're watching 24 this year, it only takes Jack Bauer to get the president. One guy can get the president to Wembley Stadium if you saw that. But it just takes one guy if you've got Jack Bauer. If you don't have him, it takes 9,000 to guard the, the main guy. And so here's this 9,000 people that, that they've heard about Jesus, now, we don't know that every one of them heard. I don't, he says throughout. I don't think he said that every single person got the full testimony. But the word's out. That this guy's going to talk. He's here to talk to the emperor about Christ. Who, how does this happen? Well, probably the guards that, he, that guard him, that, that, that he's chained to, they, they would hear from him. He would talk to them about Jesus. Probably his example is a little bit different. If he is in chains, if he is in chained, it, it seems that his attitude would be different than the average prisoner. 
The theme of this book is joy and rejoicing. The, the word comes up all the time. It's, we just read it just now in verse, uh, the last verse we read, 18. And I rejoice. The theme of joy comes up throughout the book. Paul is a joyful guy in the midst of his difficulty. And so he probably, his character is a witness. They know all about this guy. This prisoner's different than what they're used to. Secondly, or thirdly, I don't know how many things I've said, uh, he's probably also having, we know he's having guests. If it's his last imprisonment, the one at the end of Acts, he's got people coming and going. So if you're chained there, you're hearing some of the Jews come and Paul's uh, clearly preaching Christ to them. You're hearing friends maybe from other churches that have come a long distance. Wow, this guy gets guests. He gets visitors from a long distance. He's receiving money from a whole church in Macedonia. And so you'd have the privilege sitting, hearing all these conversations, telling you this guy, the guy in cell number seven is different and his guests are different. And so this is a big deal. Why are all these people coming? Who is this guy? And so the testimony about Jesus is going out. It's advancing. It's progressing to people that probably wouldn't have heard it. Now, we don't know this for sure, but if you're tied to the emperor's palace and you're a guard there and Paul comes to Rome preaching the gospel, it's very likely, it's about certain that you didn't show up at the synagogue to hear him. And it's very likely that you would have never made it to one of the home gatherings or someplace in public where he's preaching the gospel. You would have probably never met Paul. This is the most powerful city in the world. Some guy comes in preaching another God. They all believe in many gods. You'd have probably never met Paul. You're a military guy. Uh, But he's in there, so all the military force is hearing about Jesus. God rules over the circumstances and has orchestrated it that in Paul's adversity, the good news is going forward to unreached people that would not have heard the gospel. Most of them would not have heard the gospel any other way. So Paul says, listen, you'd think I'm down. You'd think I'm restricted. You would think, the ministry shut down. The gospel's going forth. Guys are hearing all the time about Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I incur, incur trouble and difficulty, and I don't incur, and nor do you probably, incur any difficulty like what Paul's experiencing. But when I do, I, I am often not thinking about how the gospel's going to go forward in the midst of this one. It's not my first question. My, my first question is, how do I get out of this? Usually, second is, pray to get out of it. Usually, third is to get some help or some counsel to get out of it. But I'm usually not thinking, how, how's the Lord, how might he use this? Let me ask you this question. Do you think about the good news going forward in the, bit, in the midst of your bad news situations? When you're in a bad news circumstance, do you think about good news going forward from your bad news circumstance? Paul did. Good news is moving forward in the midst of his suffering. Listen, you don't know who is watching you in the middle of your suffering. You do not know who the Lord has placed that has eyes on you. You don't know in the middle of your difficulty, you don't know who you're going to meet in that difficulty that you would never have met. Who through your financial difficulty, through your health difficulty, through your work difficulty, who are you going to meet that you would not have met before? Paul's got 
a whole bunch of folks he would have never met. How might God want to get his message to spread through you? See, what Paul wants the Philippians to know is grateful, grateful for your concern. And Paul does talk about his difficulties. I mean, in writing the Corinthians, he says at one point they were despairing even of life. It's not like he won't talk about his problems. He does. But in this instance, he's wanting to encourage them that, guess what? In my bad news situation, the good news is going forth. And this isn't plan B. It's not God did what he could, but, oh, well, I got arrested. Now, God's got another chance when I get to talk to Caesar. Maybe I'll get free then. But in the midst of plan B, we're doing the best we can. God's sort of redeeming plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. This isn't Paul saying, well, if life gives you lemons, just make lemonade. If you go to jail, well, tell somebody about Jesus in the jail. I guess that's not what he's saying. He's saying, hey, appreciate your concern, but uh, before I tell you how it's going with me, let me tell you how it's going with the gospel. It's moving. It's, It's spreading. It's viral. People are hearing the gospel in the midst of this situation. God is advancing through what looks down a, looks like a shutdown. It looks like the most strategic leader is shut down, but that does not stop God because the gospel is unstoppable. His power is on display as the gospel goes through adversity. And, and can I share one extra benefit as well? We're gathered here today reading a letter that was written because Paul was in jail. You ever think about that? There's something called the prison epistles. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are usually called, Philipp, uh, called the prison epistles. Paul traveled. Paul was active. He was an activist. He was moving. He was working. Sometimes he worked a couple of jobs. He worked a job during the day, um, uh, making tents, repairing tents, building tents, and he worked at night preaching the gospel. And on, the, on his free time, preaching the gospel, discipling people. He had a couple of jobs. He was like a full-time Uh, When he was in a city, he was a full-time pastor, missionary, apostle, and he was a full-time tent maker sometimes. So he had double duty. Guy is busy. But this has afforded him an opportunity to stop, to be still, to pray, to consider, and God is speaking through him, giving him letters. So the gospel is even advancing. This morning, the gospel is advancing in this room because he was imprisoned. When we talked about revival, which was like half this year so far, we talked about revival, I'm, I quoted a number of times Jonathan Edwards. A very similar situation, very interesting about Jonathan Edwards. If you read his life, he, he was, uh, some people say he's the greatest theologian this country has ever produced. I guess that depends on if you agree with his theology or not. But some say he's the greatest theologian this country's ever produced. And I largely do agree with his theology. But, um, so he was in uh, Massachusetts in the 1700s, and he, in his church and through his city, Northampton, came what was called the Great Awakening. Other people were involved as well, but, but the, he, was a, he was a center point for the Great Awakening, this tremendous revival in American history. And many people came to Christ in his city, and uh, wonderful things happened. At the end of the Great Awakening, his, his ending at his church was, uh, was not good. A number of things happened, but one thing Jonathan Edwards did was he overturned something that his grandfather had done. His grandfather started allowing children to receive communion who hadn't made a profession of faith. So they weren't believers, they hadn't personally believed in Christ uh, yet. And so Edwards overturned that. 
and said you had to be a believer, you had to have a credible profession of faith, like we do here. Pete got up and said, hey, if you're a believer, receive communion. Uh, If you're not, it'd be better to wait because you're not communing with Christ. It'd be better to wait and meet him and and then receive communion. It'd be very meaningful. Um, So Edwards put that in place, and the church basically freaked out and voted him out. I think the vote was like 200 and something to 20 something, how many voted? He got voted out, whatever it was, 10 to 1. And so this greatest mind, one of the greatest minds, some people say not just the greatest theologian, some people say he's one of the greatest minds in American history. And uh, so you know what he does? He goes, he's like exiled. He goes to the outskirts and starts ministering to Indians, um, Mohawk Indians and Mohican Indians both. They're illiterate. He later goes and becomes the president of Princeton. So this is the guy's intellect, and he's with illiterate people. First of all, that's powerful because it shows God's hand to take the most brilliant guy to reach needy people, uh, uh, the, the Indians, um, Native Americans in this country. So that, that's wonderful. It shows the compassionate heart of God to take the gospel to people who didn't know Jesus. But here's what else it did. Much of his greatest writing was done there where he was out in the middle with, in a new place, different responsibilities, different pressures, and he had time. And all the books that had been stirring in his head over those years, he wrote many of them. M- m- much of the best stuff we have from him was written in the period when he was out among, uh, as a missionary among the Indians. So people would say, wow, Jonathan Edwards, his pastoral ministry, man, what, that's embarrassing, shameful. He got kicked out. He got fired. After all that he did, this great leader, all he gets fired, wow, and he just goes out to be on the outskirts with the Indians, kind of on the wrong side of Massachusetts, so to speak. Man, that's too bad. Whatever happened to Jonathan Edwards? Well, we have his works today, much, not all. He wrote plenty when he was a pastor, but we have many because of that. So the Lord can take and sideline someone for gospel advance. The Lord can sideline you to advance the gospel. He could change your job. He could demote you at work. He he could allow you to become somehow sick or challenged physically, injured in some way. I'm not praying for that. The the passage doesn't celebrate suffering as if suffering in itself is good. Suffering is evil. It comes from the fall. But God uses suffering. God orchestrates and ordains it in our lives because he will take bad news circumstances to advance the good news through his people. Secondly, look at this. The gospel is advanced because his adversity is affecting others. So it's advanced because he's reaching the imperial guard. He's writing letters that we're reading. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Total opposite. I mean, you would think, guy preaches the gospel, guy goes to jail. I'm not preaching the gospel. I don't want to go to jail. I'll love the Lord. I'll be faithful. I'll read my Bible. I'll give. I'll serve. But I don't want to go too public because I don't want to go to jail because I want to be able to continue to, you know, be a faithful Christian witness or whatever, or I'm afraid, whatever it is. Here, here's the effect. Paul's in prison. That emboldens people to go preach the gospel. And look, it's not just, well, a few people shared a testimony. It says, because of my imprisonment, they, imprisonment, they are much more bold to speak the word, without fear. People look at Paul, they're not fearful anymore. Why? Because Paul's in prison and he's full of joy. Paul's in prison and the gospel's advancing. Paul's in prison, he's sidelined, but the, you can't sideline the gospel. Paul's, 
Paul's out for a moment, but the, but the ministry is going forward. He's bold. He's joyful. He's rejoicing. And the other people look on that and they go, I serve the same God. I can preach the gospel. I can share with others. And they do it without fear. Paul's imprisonment, rather than causing people to pull back and quake in their boots and shake and, oh, no, what's going to happen? It caused them to be bold. Do you realize that in your suffering, you could, in God, the Holy Spirit could work through you to inspire someone else to serve the Lord? Man, I have this high school memory that is so distinct to me. A guy I did not know that well, a guy named Chris. I did not know him well. He's a great ahead of me. I was probably a junior. He was a senior, I think. And uh, he was a believer. I was too. And he, uh, he, he was struck with cancer. And ultimately, it killed him before he graduated. But I remember going into his hospital room, and I'm moved thinking about this. I, he wasn't even a close friend. But he was a guy I knew, and so I visited him. A group of us went and visited him at the hospital. And I just remember walking into this kid's hospital room. And he had some poster up. I don't remember what it was, but some Christian deal up behind him, right behind his bed. He had put something on the wall. And um, on the table there, he, I just remember he had this, I can still remember this. I'm probably 16 years old then, 17. He had this massive, like old school Bible. Like you need a wheelbarrow for this thing. <laughs> like luggage, you know how luggage has a cart with wheels you pull? You like needed a, you needed a wheel, this Bible. I mean, his fat Bible right out there. And he had his Keith Green music playing. That'll mean something to some of you. It won't to others. But if you, if you knew Keith Green, so Keith Green's very, singing songs about Jesus is what he's doing. And he's telling us about how he's been able to share his faith. He's bold with the Lord. He's not just sort of in there. He's got all his stuff. His music's playing. His Bible's there. He's got whatever poster deal he had up. I don't remember. And he's telling us about witnessing to people. The nurses are coming in. He said, I'm telling people about Christ. And I remember after being in that room, just being affected and thinking, man, if this guy can take a stand for Jesus and he's dying, he's a high school kid. This isn't your grandpa, which is sad enough. This is a high school kid. Not thinking about what all kinds of things I might miss out on. And it gave me a boldness to stand for Jesus in my school. To, 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 I can tell somebody about Christ if he can. I, I can, I never bought a Bible that big, but I don't have to hide my faith. I don't have to hide it. I can be open. Think about Chris, and that's what Paul says. People find out about my imprisonment, and they're going bold. They're going public with their faith. So what happens here, Paul the first idea here, the first truth in this passage is the gospel is advancing through adversity. Here's the second big idea in the passage is the gospel is advancing through rivalry. Yeah, that's what I said. Write that down because that's what this text says. The gospel is advancing through rivalry, which sounds impossible. And what he says is that verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So there's, there's two kinds of people. There's people out there because there's people out there preaching the gospel while Paul's locked up. And, and some of those people that are preaching the gospel, here's how they're sharing the gospel. They're doing it from goodwill. Verse 16, they do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. They do it, verse 18, with a true motive, he says, whether in pretense or truth. Pretense has to do with your motive. They do it with a true motive. 
So he's saying some people are out and they, they are preaching from love. They love Jesus, but they also love Paul. Because when he says here, he says, they do it from goodwill, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So they look at Paul and they say, Paul has been sidelined because he's faithful. And so we're supporting him. We're preaching the same gospel. We love this man. We're not separating. We're not ashamed of our association with Paul. We are, we are supporting Paul and we're preaching the same gospel out of love. However, this other group, there's this other group that rises up, verse 15, they preach out of envy and rivalry. Now, here's what's important. They preach the gospel. They preach the gospel. They are not heretics. Uh, They preach Christ. The, The problem is their motive. It's not their message. They're preaching the true gospel. If they were preaching heresy, Paul would say, shut them down correct them. Read First and Second Timothy. You read preaching heresy, Paul's going to correct it. But they're not preaching heresy. Verse 15, they're preaching Christ, but they do it out of rivalry or envy. What does that mean? Well, we don't know, but it's very personal towards Paul. They're envious of Paul. They envy, what's their envy? They envy Paul. Why? Well, there would be a lot to be jealous of. I suppose if you did the same thing as Paul, you could be tempted to envy. First of all, he's incredibly gifted incredibly powerful. The churches respect him largely. Not all, some of them perhaps don't. Uh, He's got a very fruitful ministry. Um, God keeps rescuing him. God's at work in him. Uh, And so there is some envy for Paul and there's some rivalry. So what does that mean? There's some kind of selfish ambition. There's a, Paul's not rivaling them. They preach the same Jesus. That's what he says. But they see themselves as a rival to Paul. So what are they doing? Well, maybe they're trying to win allegiance from some of his converts. It certainly could be that Paul's got led people to Christ. This, he sidelined this opportunity for me to come in and be a leader. This is an opportunity for me to talk about what I'm going to do in the church and how I'm serving and my teaching. And I don't want to hear about, well, Paul taught us, or we read from Paul, or somebody said, hey, what, what, what am I, you know? And so they're, they're inching in, perhaps, and they're trying to gain followers. They're trying to gain power. They're trying to gain allegiance or leadership, something where there's this challenge with Paul. And one of the rivalry ways is they could be trying to uh, capture uh, the following of some people who respect Paul. They are preaching the gospel. Verse seven, the f- 17, I'm sorry. The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. I mean, this is how cruel this is. Paul is in prison and they want to inflict him. They're envious, they're rivaling. I hope the word gets back to Paul that some of the people that really liked him, they're coming to our Bible study now. They're calling me Pastor, I don't know, they're in Rome, Pastor Luigi or whatever. They're calling me that. So it's not Pastor Paul, it's Pastor Luigi. So now I've got some followers here. And uh, so, so see, there's this rival. And so it's, they want to inflict him. Here's what he's saying. Paul's saying, there are people out there that want to pour salt in my wounds. And they're doing it. They envy me. They're trying to get at me. They're trying to get me, but do they get Paul? They do not. He says, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. They have a false motive. They're acting all humble, but they want allegiance or power or leadership or respect. 
or money. I don't know what they want. They want something. And so they're acting loving, but they have this ulterior motive. They're preaching the gospel. So Paul doesn't say, stop preaching false doctrine. They're preaching the gospel. They have bad motives. And so Paul says, whether it's in pretense, Paul says in another place, we don't preach the gospel out of pretense or greed. In a different book, he says that. So he says here, whether it's in pretense or truth, those who are envious or those who are my friends, doesn't really matter. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. They don't get Paul. I used to have a pastor friend who said, you know, they're trying to get Paul, trying to get his goat. And I used to have a pastor friend who say, if someone can get your goat, it's because you got a goat to get. And Paul doesn't have any goat to get. They can't get his goat because he is rejoicing that the gospel's going forth. That's what, that's what Paul is excited about. Now, he's not saying that motives don't matter. There will be times where he will correct motives. He's not saying that it, it just it doesn't matter what anybody does or anything like that. There are other places where he will correct. And here, just think of all the things he could have said or could have done, but he celebrates the gospel because his point is that the gospel is moving forward. And here's what we learn about Paul. His joy is not tied to his name being promoted. That, that's not what he's joyful about. His joy is not tied to everyone being for him and with him. People are opposing him, and yet I rejoice that the gospel's going forth. He doesn't care. Paul doesn't care who gets the credit if people meet Jesus. That's what Paul cares most about. Again, there will be, there's a time to address, address motives. He doesn't do that here. His highest goal is that people meet Jesus. If the gospel is being preached, Paul will rejoice because people are finding out about Christ. Now, motives matter, but the key thing here is that the motives of others shouldn't lead us to envy or shouldn't lead us to bitterness or shouldn't lead us to self-righteousness or shouldn't lead us to anger, or shouldn't lead us to cynicism. The gospel is advancing, and that's the center of Paul's world. If that's happening, he's joyful. And that's certainly a message to us, isn't it? I mean, we live in a world where people fight about anything in the church. I mean, there are times, there are times when I I look at things I read and see, or look at my own thoughts, That, that would probably be the better place to look, and I just say, man, sometimes the church is worse than the world. The example of the church is worse than the example of unbelievers sometimes with this kind of thing. The envy, the rivalry, the I'm right, the I want to be known as right, I want to be recognized. And if I'm not, I'll just go do my own thing. And uh, just all of the kind of rivalry and dissension that takes place in the body of Christ. It'd be easy to step back and judge and be easy to grow cynical. But Paul is not a cynic. Paul's full of joy because the gospel is going forth. There's a time to address motives, but here it is a celebration of the gospel. Ultimately, we affirm the gospel, and whether Paul does it or not, some God will sort out motives. God will sort out motives. On the great day, for sure, he'll sort out, sort out all of our motives. Well, here's the last 
point that I'm making here. So Paul, the gospel is advancing through adversity. The gospel is advancing even with rivalry. And the last thing is that Paul finds his joy in that advance of the gospel. I mean, this whole passage is so countercultural. I wish I could say this, this passage is so countercultural in the world. Folks, this passage is so countercultural for me and for you, for the church. This is a countercultural message. Why is it countercultural? Well, first of all, he's joyful in the midst of suffering. He's not saying suff- the suffering is, a go- is good, but he's saying in the midst of the suffering, God is working good and the gospel is going He's joyful in suffering. Secondly, other people see him suffering, and they don't say, I want none of that. They run at it. They see him suffering for the gospel, they run into the midst of the fray. So I'll do the same thing. Boldly, I'll share the gospel with my neighbor. I'll share the gospel with my family. I'll share the gospel with my coworker. Man, Paul got in a lot of trouble. Paul got fired. It'd be like that. Paul got fired from his job for preaching the gospel. Great, I'm going to go preach the gospel at my job. Whoa, that's... That doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. That's exactly what happens in this passage. They proclaim the gospel more boldly. They do the same. Everybody starts doing the same thing that landed him in prison. And here he is. When all that's going on, people are pouring salt in his wounds. And he's finding joy in the success of his rivals. What is that? I mean, how does this happen? How can we have a life that is so centered on Christ that through the lens of Jesus and his glory and other people experiencing the same love and forgiveness from God that we've experienced, that that is so central and that is so motivating and that drives my soul such that I could be joyful in suffering if it's advancing the gospel, such that I could be emboldened if it's going to cost me and I'm willing to risk, such that even if my rivals are successful and bearing fruit with the name of Jesus, I rejoice. It's an amazing, amazing passage. How do we become that kind of people? Well, it is a work of the Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit gives these ideas to our minds. Only the Holy Spirit brings these desires, these convictions to us. Only the Holy Spirit gives us this kind of heart. Only the Holy Spirit gives this kind of vision. Only this, when I say vision, I mean perspective. Only the Holy Spirit allows us to interpret our situations through, really, if I could say it this way, through the lens of the gospel. That's what Paul has. He takes gospel lenses and the advance of the gospel, and now I can interpret my life. So it's not what good things are happening, what bad things are. How, about, how do I feel? How am I doing? Again, I think I don't have to build a fence. You heard me earlier. There's a place to be honest, a place to share. We want transparency. We want brokenness. We want to invite prayer. Absolutely. We want counsel. We want help. Yes, yes, yes. But, but here he's saying, I, I, now I'm, I'm able to look at all my difficulties, all my challenges, all my victories, and I'm able to ask the question, man, what, what might the Lord do in this situation? And life's an adventure from that point of view. It's a work of the Spirit. It's a work of the Scripture. We only know Jesus through the Word of God, through the Bible. And the only way to have this perspective is to know him intimately, to be aware of how glorious he is. I mean, if we don't know him, then we won't be willing to sacrifice, risk. We won't view things as worth it. 
Paul says, I counted everything in my previous religious life as rubbish, as trash, compared to knowing Christ. If we don't see Christ like that, we'll take the religious stuff and say, that's great. I feel good about myself. Others respect me. I'm going to do the religious stuff, be a good boy. People will respect and love me, and I'm just going to go be religious. Or we'll do the opposite. We'll just run to the world. It's not really worth it. I might as well be out somehow enjoying myself. If we don't see, if we don't find ultimate enjoyment in Jesus, as Paul does, then we'll never have this heart. And the only way to know him is through the scripture. We have a vision for God from his word, from his people as well. That's his spirit, his word, and his people. Paul is very community driven here. He's going to say, I think twice, for sure once later in Philippians, follow my example. Follow my example. Why is he telling them all this? So they'll follow his example. What about the bold witnesses who know Paul in prison? Follow his example. What about the kid, the acquaintance, hardly even a friend that I knew in high school, Chris? The example. There's an example. When we're near one another, we can see an example. We can experience an example, and we can be stirred. I can trust God. That person's trusting God. The Lord's with them. The Holy Spirit's helping them. Community has an effect on us that way. In isolation, you never get that. I mean, you can read some good stories. I told you the Jonathan Edwards story. You can read the good stories. But I'd rather be with you and see your life and see it walked out than I would read about Jonathan Edwards any day. I don't care how brilliant he is, how gifted he is, how the Lord used him historically. You're the person next to me with flesh on, and we're in this thing together. I'd rather see him work in your life. I was at community group this week on Tuesday night, and towards the end of the meeting, a lady in the meeting just began to communicate what the group meant to her. Unsolicited. It wasn't even the question we were talking about, I don't think. But she just began to talk about with this group. She says, whenever I come into this group, I come in here no matter what it's like, I feel the spiritual health of the group together, and it strengthens me. I don't remember her exact words. She was saying, it it, it inspires me. I find strength to go on because of what I see God doing in your life and because of your help for me. And there there was someone saying, how do I do it? How do I have this kind of vision? I need to be around other people, and we can have that vision together. Any one of us could be weak at any time, could lose vision. That's why we can gather around and help each other gain vision. We can take the glasses and help put them back on each other. So the spirit, the word, the community, I think those are really key areas. Let me close with this. Let me ask you, where are you struggling now? It's probably what you thought of when I talked about complaining at the beginning. You don't have to think long about what you're struggling with. Where's the adversity? Where's the difficulty? Where's the resistance in your life today? Where's the challenge? Where's the pressure point? Where's the burden? Think about that. Now let me ask you this. How might God use that to shine the gospel through? That's a different perspective. How might God take that work situation and somehow, in God's power, God's sovereign power, how might he bring the good news of Jesus through that situation to you, first of all, even as a Christian, for encouragement, but to others? What might he do? And that'd be a great dream. You know, I, I, I go worst case scenario. And then I get all my plans. I plan all my options to, to deflect all the worst, case, <laughs> the worst cases, right? What about if we dreamed about best case scenario? What might Almighty God do through this? 
If you were to ask this question, if you were joyful in God, I don't want to ask it if, you probably are, I don't want to assume, everybody's miserable, okay. If you were joyful in God, who could be affected by your trial? Okay, if you walk through this trial with joy, who might God affect? First of all, it'll be people you don't know and aren't thinking of. But who do you know? Who might be affected? What family member? What person in your community group? What person in your neighborhood? Who might be affected to watch you walk joyfully through this trial? That gives some vision. How am I doing? The gospel is, is working, I'm pr- or at least I'm praying for that. I'm at least praying for the joy of the Lord to be in me and through me so that he would affect others. Here's the last question. If you were bold in speaking of Jesus, who could be emboldened? We don't use that word much. Who, who else could be helped to be bold? Who, who else could catch the bold spirit, the Holy Spirit? If I took a step for my faith and I took a risk and I was bold for the Lord, as Paul is, who might be affected and they could be bold for the Lord? Again, often it'd be someone you don't know, someone who would say, wow, I didn't, I didn't even know I was doing that. Often it's that. I didn't even know, oh, was I joyful? You noticed, right? Often we're just walking with the Lord and trusting him and he uses it. But sometimes it's helpful to think about this strategically. So how might God shine through your struggle with the gospel? If you were joyful in God in your struggle, who could be affected by that? And if you were bold in speaking of Christ in your trial, who might also share your boldness? And if you just can't imagine any of that, if your challenge is so overwhelming that you're going, man, you are like, you would like preaching something unreal. Good, the message got through. This is unreal. This only happens through the Holy Spirit's power. It's miraculous. But if you go, that is, that is crazy stuff. I can't even imagine that. I'm so down. I'm so low. This trial's gone on so long. It's, it's a mountain. I can't even imagine that. Then here's what you can do. You can just go to someone and ask them to pray for you. You can ask them, would you pray for me that I could start getting God's perspective? Because I have none of it right now or very little. Or I get it like five minutes a week. I get it. Or I got it this morning and I, as soon as I get in my car, it's going to still be in this room. I want to carry God's vision with me. Let's, let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.